Hebrews chapter 4, finishing off chapter 4 this morning. Let's um, just want to read through the text one more time, just a few verses this morning from verse 14, and then we'll pray and then we will study. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we... Um, we pray this morning that as we come to these words that you would enable us, Lord, to understand them by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that he who inspired them would make them uh, apparent to our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would know your word, understand your word, and hearing it, Lord, and understanding it, Lord, we would act upon it. We would glorify you with how we respond. May we not be like those who harden their hearts in the wilderness, but may we take your word upon us. And Lord, may you be glorified through its transforming work in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Hebrews 4, verse 14. This verse is well known and beloved and it is a turning point in the book of Hebrews. Up until this point, the story so far, if you like, is that he has made the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is in chapter 2, um, lifted mankind above the angels in, its, in our origin, and said that though the ministry of man was hindered by sin, that the the goal of mankind will be accomplished through the man Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, we saw that Jesus was greater than Moses. And really, as we came through the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, because of the exaltation of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he has accomplished, because of our faith, our confession of Christ, he says, be really careful. Be really careful that you don't end up like those in the wilderness who heard God's word and through fear, through not trusting God, they rejected it. They rejected the word of God. And it was in that context we saw last time. And if you missed it last week, I encourage you to catch up online because when it talks about the word of God being a sword, the image is one of the sword in Numbers 14, where the disobedient Israelites tried to go into the land after they were told no. When they were supposed to go into the land, they didn't. And then when their judgment was passed upon them, they weren't allowed to go into the land, and they did. And they fell by the sword. And the word of God is like a sword in that regard. It exposes us, our motives, it exposes us when we say that we're going to follow God and we're not. It's all well and good saying you're going to follow God, but then if you're not doing what he says, you're not following God. 
And the word of God exposes that. And so there's this whole section of warning where he's saying to them, look, you have this faith, you have this confession, you have this great saviour, you have all you need, don't turn your back. Don't walk away, don't harden your heart, don't mess up. He says, listen, when you hear the word, listen. And what is the message that they have to listen to? Well, the message, more so than what's already been said, is what is to come. And really, from chapter 4 and verse 14, we now really push on to the central part of the book of Hebrews. And we're talking here, this verse, about Jesus being our high priest. And this discussion is going to go on, not just for these three verses. As Christina read for us this morning, it's going to go on right the way through chapter 5. Aren't you looking forward to hearing all about Melchizedek and all the details of the Levitical high priesthood? That's going to be coming in parts of chapter 5. And then all of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. This whole theme of Jesus being our high priest is central. Now, part of the problem with all of this is that we come in as Christians who know very little about the Levitical priesthood. In fact, sometimes you would have Jews who aren't even Christians who might know more about the Levitical priesthood than we do. And so we don't understand a lot of the imagery going on. And rather than doing a crash course today, we're going to see as the writer unfolds the the points here will we'll unfold with him and we'll have a look each week in more detail at the Levitical priesthood. But in summary, just so we are all on the same page to start with, what happened in the Old Covenant was this, that there was a sacrificial system that was there to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. That because they should have died for their sin, the animals would die in their place for their sins. That was how the system would work. And, and the pinnacle of the sacrificial system was this one holy of all holy days, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, and only on that day, the high priest, one man on one day, not a man, as we heard in the reading from chapter 5, we'll talk about this in future weeks, not someone who says, hey, I'll be high priest, but someone who is chosen and appointed, who's given that position. On that one day, he would pass through the inner veil into the Holy of Holies. And there would be the mercy seat where the sacrifice would be made for the sin of the people for the year wasn't permanent, didn't remove their sin, it simply turned away the wrath of God for the following year when he would then have to go back in the next year and do it all over again. Now as Christians, when we hear that Jesus is our high priest, we've got to see it in that imagery, in that, in that, in that kind of terminology. This is not just an, oh, he, let's call him a high priest. You know, there was a high priest. There was a Levitical system. There was a sacrificial system. And saying that Jesus is our high priest is saying something specific that as we understand that system, 
we can then see what it is that Jesus has done. And without giving you too many spoilers, as we work our way through to the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that the priesthood of Jesus is the superior and better priesthood in five ways. In five ways. He's in a better position. We'll see a little bit of that today and see what that means. He's a better priest. There is a better covenant. They had the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. We are under the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah uh, 31. Uh, There is a better sanctuary and there is a better sacrifice. And he will go through all of these points through to the end of chapter 10. So as we start off on our journey today, I just wanted you to know that as we finish this whole section of where he's saying, today, don't harden your hearts. Today, don't harden your hearts. Don't be like those people. He's been saying this for a long period of time. We've been dealing with Numbers 14. Don't be like those people in Kadash Barnea. Don't harden your heart. Trust God. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing. The land of milk and honey is ready for you. Do not turn away. Don't let the word of God expose your sinfulness. And now he's telling them what it is that God is saying. Now he's telling them what it is they have to believe. This is what they mustn't harden their heart to. And so we say again to you, trust in Christ. Trust in who he is. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament appeased for sin a year at a time. The sacrifice of Christ appeases for sin for all time. Since then, verse 14... Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, don't go running off. Don't go back to Judaism. You stick and you hold fast to your confession, to your faith. Because what we have is a great high priest. Now, we've already seen the since then refers back to what he'd already said about Jesus, the high priest, before he got into the whole, today, if you hear his voice, don't be like Numbers 14. He concluded the previous section by saying how Jesus was our high priest. Chapter 2, verse 17, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in chapter 2, if you recall, he's talking about the importance of mankind, how God has appointed man to accomplish certain things, and that though man has sinned and man has fallen, that God is going to fulfill his purposes through man, through Jesus. And therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters, like us, in every respect. Jesus was fully human. He had hormones going through his blood system, around his body. He, he wasn't an image, a hologram, a hallucination, some sort of vision. He was genuine flesh and blood. He was made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus, to become a high priest, the high priest had to be a man. 
The man was representing his fellow men to God. God can't just be a high priest by himself. The high priest is the one who represents his fellow men. And so in Christ, God became a man, fully man, so that he could take the role of high priest on. That doesn't answer the question of how he could qualify for the Levitical priesthood, because he doesn't. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 5, that he is a priest, not of the Levitical priesthood, which is part of the Old Covenant, but he is one of the order of Melchizedek, and we'll talk about that in chapter 5. But he had to be a man to be our high priest, and he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You remember that big word, propitiation? Appeasing of wrath and anger. God's anger was against the people of Israel because of their sin. The high priest, in making the sacrifice, made a propitiation. He appeased, he turned away the anger of God. The wrath of God that would result in the death of Israel and the Israelites was put upon the sacrifice. They died in the place of the Israelites. In the same way, Jesus, in his sacrifice, appeases the wrath of God. The big difference, of course, is that Jesus is not only the high priest, he is also the sacrifice. And so, since then, he is our high priest. The high priest, chapter 3, verse 1, of our confession, which is what's being referenced here in chapter 4, he is the high priest of our confession. Since he has that role, he is he is the one here, the high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Now, I don't know to what degree the passing through the heavens is um, to do with how the heavens were viewed. I'm not going to get heavily into this, but in some parts of ancient literature and scripture, there was three heavens, and by other counts, there were seven heavens. Paul talks about the seventh heaven. And I think seven simply refers to the fullness of the heavens. But the three heavens are simpler for us to understand. Broadly speaking, heavens would be just the sky around us, the atmosphere. The birds don't walk on the ground, they fly through the heavens. It would be what we call sky. Then when you look beyond the sky and you see the sun, and at night you see the moon and the stars, you're kind of going beyond where the birds fly. That would be what they call the second heavens. We would call it space. And third heaven would be what we call heaven. And the idea, and this is where it's so crucial, and we'll talk about this more as the weeks go by, but the resurrection isn't specifically mentioned in Hebrews, but it's central to everything he's saying. Christ, when he died on the cross, rose again and he ascended. And there's something very symbolic in that, because he's ascending through the heavens, ascending into the sky and out of sight, and he is now in heaven, what they would call the third heaven, what we would refer to as heaven, at the right hand of the Father. That's the better position that I referenced previously. 
Now, the passing through the heavens is really important. Okay? Really important. The idea is that in his resurrection and then on to his ascension, in other words, in him leaving death, being resurrected unto life and going to be with the Father, he ascends and he goes through the heavens and he ends up with God the Father. Okay? That's important because the context is high priest. The high priest is in the temple with other men and the other priests and what have you. And he goes through the inner veil, that temple curtain. And he goes into the Holy of Holies on that one day, that one person. Anybody else goes into the presence of God, they drop down dead. He goes into the presence of God on any other day, he drops down dead. But that one man on that one day goes to the presence of God to represent the rest of his people and to appease the wrath of God. Jesus was fully man. And the greatest expression of his humanity, the greatest evidence of his humanity, was his death. God doesn't die, only man dies. And so Jesus, in becoming fully man, becomes a high priest and he dies like man dies. Why do we die? Because sin came into the world. And though he was sinless, he takes on the effects of sin fully in death. And in his death, he is the lamb the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that the whole of the sacrificial system, century after century after century, was waiting for this one sacrifice. It was a picture. It was an image. It was a type of the sacrifice that was to come. And so the sacrifice is made, and as the high priest leaves his fellow men, and represents them and passes through to go to be with God. So Jesus leaves mankind, passes through the heavens, and goes to be with God the Father. You see the, the parallel there in the imagery? There was a sacrificial system year by year whereby the wrath of God against people's sin was appeased through animal sacrifice. And the high priest represented the people and made that sacrifice. Jesus became man, died, was the sacrifice, and then rises from death, passes through the heavens, and presents the sacrifice, makes the sacrifice to God the Father to appease his wrath, not for one year, not for two years, but forever. That is why as Christians we talk about the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Because that's our faith. Our faith is that that system has been replaced by a new system. Why, people, would you harden your hearts and walk away from a gift like that? 
And yet the persecution was such that they were tempted to do so. And so he's saying to them, look, you've got a great high priest. Why would you go back to a temple system? You know, at the time he wrote, the temple had not been destroyed and they were still making sacrifice year after year. And do you know what those sacrifices were before God? Nothing. Because the only sacrifice that mattered had been made on the cross. The old covenant, the old system was gone, it was over. And yet there was a high priest still making sacrifices. He's like, why would you go back? We have a great high priest. He doesn't pass through a veil to go to be in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He's there at the right hand of the Father. He passed through the heavens. So what do you do in response to that? You hold fast to your faith. What are you struggling with? What trials do you have? What temptations are before you? What are you falling in? What are you failing in? What is it that's tempting you to trust in the world, to, to find your, your, um, your help anywhere apart from God? What is it that's causing you to worry? What is it that's causing you to not stand firm? To not trust in him? He's saying, look to him. Hold fast to your confession. For, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because he was a human, fully human, he understands what it is. Now, every respect has to be understood in context, you know. I don't think it means that he was tempted in literally every way that we could be tempted. I'm pretty safe, I think, I think I'm pretty safe in saying that Jesus was never tempted to give up an entire day and binge watch Netflix. I'm, I'm just guessing that was never a temptation that he had to face, you know. So there are, there are differences. You know, Jesus was fully human and he was a human man. So he would have had testosterone running through his body from the point that he hit puberty and that would have brought with it a whole bunch of temptations that you guys could probably relate to. But you ladies have different hormones that work differently and cause you different temptations and different struggles. He didn't have those struggles, but he understood how the frailty of the human body, whether seen in hormones or whether seen in just the tendency within us to sin, he can understand that. He knows how frail we are. No, he didn't have original sin. He didn't have a tendency to sin like we do, but he understood the frailty of the human body. He understood what it meant to, have, to, to be tempted, to, to have, you know, and that example, to have hormones. He understands the temptation of when you're tired and you're weary. I mean, how many times do you slip up in life because you're tired? You're just like, oh, you know, I know I need to do this. I know I should do that, but I'm just so tired. He understood that. He gets it. Those of you who, because of work or children, are struggling with like so few hours of sleep, it's just ridiculous. He understands that. He, he knows that. He understands that place, that human frailty. And, and so the writer is saying, look, 
When you are being persecuted, don't you think that he understands? That he knows? When we look at the suffering of Christ, of course, we, we can never really get too far away from Gethsemane. There's plenty of times when, like Christ in that garden, we could say, Lord, take this cup from me. I don't want what it is that you've given to me. I don't want to have to deal with this disease. I don't want to have to have this persecution. I don't want to have to have this trial. I don't want to have to have this suffering. I just simply don't want it. You can say that. Jesus said that. But then he said, yet not my will be done, but yours. That's faith. And that's trust. And that is temptation and trial without sin. And that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, don't harden your hearts. Don't. You've got a high priest. You've got someone who is, who is representing you. He was here on earth with his fellow man and he's passed through the heavens to go and represent you before God. Don't run off. Don't walk away from him. But rather hold fast and understand that when you're tempted to leave him, he gets that. He understands that. He's been there. And he has done it without sin and without failure. And so he then says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help uh, sorry find grace to help in the time of need and so jesus being our high priest the high priest if you remember the imagery he would go through that temple curtain the veil the inner veil and he'd go to the holy of holies in the temple where the presence of god was and there was this place there called the mercy seat and the mercy seat is where the sacrifice on the day of atonement would be made for the people and he says that we with confidence draw near to the throne of grace now, I want you to see, and I think people miss this. Can you see the dramatic shift in the imagery here? Who's the high priest? Jesus is the high priest, right? Yes? So he passed through the heavens. Any of you been flying lately? Any of you passed through the heavens? I'm guessing not. He's the one that's passed through the heavens. Any of you been before the throne of God, sat at the right hand of the Father? I'm guessing not. There are some churches where people suggest that they have. I suggest you don't go anywhere near those churches. Little bit wacky to say the least. No, Jesus is our high priest. He passed through the heavens and he goes to be in the presence of God, right? And yet suddenly, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace hold on a second we have this whole imagery where jesus the high, high priest he's the one who's holy he's the one who makes the sacrifice he is the sacrifice he passes through he goes to the presence of god so he's in the presence of god on our behalf right right so he draws near right yeah 
So let us then draw near. Do you see that? That's quite a dramatic shift, isn't it? Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. This, this high priest relationship is way, way, way beyond the high priest relationship that the Israelites had with their high priest. This is why Paul, as we saw in Ephesians, he says, you have been seated in heavenly places. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. In Christ, you're seated in the heavenly realm. In Christ, because we are associated with him. That's why we have baptism. When somebody gets baptised, they go under the water. Not because we're weird people that like, like pretend drowning, but because it's symbolic that when they go under the water, it represents death. Why? Because we who trust in Christ, we have died with him. And fortunately, we don't leave them there, because there'll be all sorts of suing going on if that happened. And, and legal cases, we lift them up again briefly afterwards because like Christ, they rise from the dead because we associate with his resurrection. When he died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Now this is, I think, and, and even reading the commentaries, I, I think we all kind of miss this a little bit, the dramatic shift in verse 16. Jesus is the high priest, but let us then now he's going to explain how this works later on in a lot more detail. But the, the, the amazing thing about the Christian faith is, is this. That under the, in, in Judaism, under the old covenant, there was one person who represented the Jewish people who went in on that one day to the presence of God. But because our high priest is a better high priest, because he is in a better position at the right hand of God, because we have a better covenant than new covenant without the Levitical system, but we have a better priesthood in the Melchizedek priesthood. Because there is a better sanctuary in the throne of grace and the mercy seat in heaven. And because, of course, his sacrifice is better, everything is different. Our high priest doesn't go to the presence of God for one day to represent us. Our high priest gets us into the presence of God. And I'm sorry, but the vast majority of us do not know our Old Testament and our Jewish history well enough to understand just how freaking significant that is. That is huge. There is this entire journey where, where mankind was, was there and, and dwelt in the garden in the presence of God and sin caused them to be thrown out and the presence of God was left to guard the garden to stop them coming back in. And from that point on, there is this, there is this journey that God's people do with the presence of God, where God shows up here and shows up there. And eventually, in the book of Exodus, through Moses, there is this transition from God appearing, as he had done in Genesis, here and there, in a burning bush, at the beginning of the book, to this process by which God comes to dwell with his people in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. And then ultimately, as history goes on in the temple, but again, because of sin, God's presence leaves the temple, and the temple's destroyed. The temple's rebuilt, but God's presence doesn't return until Jesus returns in the temple in human flesh in John chapter 2. 
And he stands in the temple and he says, you destroy this temple, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Because he was talking about his body. God's presence was now in him. And there is this entire history of the presence of God. And Jesus, as he tears apart the old system, the old curtain, the old covenant, the old priesthood, as he tears it all apart and replaces it with something so much better, he takes us with him to the presence of God. More so, he who became the temple of God makes us temples of God because he says, it's better that I go because I'll send another, the Holy Spirit, that I will send you as the Father sent me. You will be temples of God as I am a temple of God. That whole kind of imagery. And so it is that as Christians, we no longer have to have someone represent us to get us in the presence of God on the day of the year. We have one man who at one time made one sacrifice and went to the presence of God so that we could have access to God constantly. And this is not saying, oh, by the way, you approach God and you come into his presence. I don't, I don't believe any of that. There is this nonsense. All these churches that say, we come into your presence. No, we don't come into your presence. We're always in the presence of God. God dwells within us. His Holy Spirit lives within us if we're Christians. But what he's talking about in this verse, he's, he's not saying come into the presence of God. He's using the imagery of the high priesthood and he's saying, don't you understand what Christ has accomplished for you? He's there for you always. Not one day. Oh, I've really messed up this year. I can't wait for the day of atonement. What are you talking about? No Christian's going to say that. What's happening here is this, that we have a high priest who loves us, who understands our weaknesses and has paved the way to God for us. And we have constant access 24-7 every single day, even on Christmas Day and Easter Sunday. Never closed, never shut, never on vacation never sleeps, Psalm 4. And yet, we don't go. We don't approach him. We don't use him. Therefore, use him, is what he's saying. You don't have to say, if I go into the presence of God, am I going to be not... It is all done. The old system is done. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Here the throne of grace is, is, the, is the parallel to the mercy seat where sacrifice was made. And he says, look, just go to Christ, go to God and receive mercy and find grace. When? To help in your time of need. We don't have a system of, of this rigmarole of sacrifice and access on this day and not on another day. It has all been replaced in Christ and in him, we, whenever we're in need, we can come to him and he will hear us. 
There's no making an appointment. There's no waiting for a special day. There's no having to find the right bull without the blemish to make the right sacrifice. There is simply Jesus who longs to hear our prayers. There is simply Jesus who says, come to me and I'll be your strength. There's Jesus who is the rock who says, hide in me, like Moses was hid in the rock in Exodus 34. There is Jesus who says, I will meet your needs. I've appeased the wrath of the Father. There's no sin between you anymore. Just come, talk to me, give me your help. One of the things we've been seeing on Tuesday nights in our studies through Psalm 37 is simply this. That faith and trust and waiting on God is about us simply saying, you're in charge and I trust you. And there's this beautiful verse in, uh, I might even turn there, it's so close to Hebrews. When in First Peter he talks about um, how we, uh, and James as well, they have the same sort of concept, how we humble ourselves. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting your cares upon him. How do we acknowledge that God is great and we're small? How do we exalt him and humble ourselves? We say, I haven't got an answer, God, but you do. I can't make this happen, but you can. I'm not sovereign, but you are. I trust you. Here's the, here's the situation I can't handle. Here's the problem that I'm dealing with. Here's the fears that I have. I trust you. That is humility. That is us humbling ourselves before God. And you know what? We get to do it with utter confidence. Because the one that we're making our request to, the one that we're asking for help, for chapter 4, verse 16, it's the one that died for us sins, died in our place, who rose from the dead, who conquered death, who passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, come, come, whenever you need me, whenever you need help, whenever you need mercy and grace, just come. And we're so stinking proud that we try and fix things, we try and manipulate things, we try to make things happen. We try to take control of things because we just don't get that we're not God, we're not sovereign, we're not in charge. So he's saying to them, in this context, he's saying to them, I get that you are being persecuted. I get that it's going to be so much easier for your life for you to just go to the old covenant services in the temple, to go and meet with your, your, your brethren in the synagogue. I, I get that that's easier for you. I know what it is. I know what weakness is. I know what temptations and try. I get it. It's so much easier for you. Don't do it. Don't compromise. Because the one who's in charge can be trusted. So when you have a need, persecution in their, in their context, when you have that need, why would you go away from Christ when he's the one that's going to help you in your time of need? What do you need? 
mercy, grace, there's Jesus. Why would you go to a system that is going away from Jesus? Why would you turn to a system that Jesus has replaced? It makes no sense. Why would you do that? Jesus is superior to that system. Now most of us, as I say occasionally in our Hebrew studies, most of us aren't going to be tempted to go to a synagogue and to go and start worshipping under the old covenant system. Many of the Christians who were in that situation, they still believed in Jesus. It's, it's not, I'm just, I'm just going to go and hang out, you know. I'm just going to go to the synagogue, make sure my mum's happy that I'm there, you know. It's not like I don't believe in Jesus anymore, right? He said, don't do it. You see, for us, it's about compromising to fit in. It's about doing things we know we shouldn't do because of pressures upon us, whether they be you know, family, whether they be financial, whether they be, they be circumstantial, whether it's just persecution, whether it's just plain old-fashioned fear. The world is so appealing. It calls to us every day. It tells us how wrong we are, how stupid we are. It looks at our beliefs and our lives and makes us feel like we're stupid. Why would you not do this? Why would you do, why would you do that? Why would you make things harder for yourself? Why would you do that? You know what we do? We say, Jesus, you're superior, and we trust you, and right now I need help. I need your mercy, I need your grace, and I'm going to come before you with utter confidence because you are Jesus. Jesus, Son of God. Jesus emphasizing his humanity, his human name, that he was the one who died, but he is the son of God. He is sovereign. He is deity. He is as much God as the Father is God. And he is the one to be worshipped. No, you may not be tempted to go to an old covenant system of worship, but we are tempted in so many different ways, and the answer for us is the same as the answer was for them. With confidence, draw near to the throne. We have our sin forgiven. We have a high priest who represents us. We have one who is sovereign, who is in control, and we just go, we say, Lord, Help. Just help. And we trust him. Because he knows us, he knows our weaknesses, and he loves us. Friends, my prayer for us all this day, as always, is that we would not be the people who compromise, but we would be the people who trust. God's grace is sufficient, always has been, always will be. And I'm looking forward as we hit chapter 5 to see all the details in these coming chapters of what it means for him to be our high priest. Because I tell you, if you hear today and you think, yeah, I've got to trust in Christ. I should trust in Christ. Why don't I trust in Christ as much as I do? Why, why, why don't I cry out for help more often? Oh, you're going to feel that even more after chapter 5. And you're going to feel it even more after chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And he is going to put together an argument that's going to exalt Christ to such a place that we are just going to have to, we're going to have to just come and bow before him and let him be sovereign in our lives. Let's pray.
Father, this day we reject the world and all its false promises. This day we reject our flesh and the sin that it craves. This day we reject the desire to be exalted, to be proud. This day we reject the old covenant system. The system of trying to appease you. This day we embrace Christ. We embrace him in all that he is, in his humanity, in his deity, in his sovereignty, and we embrace him as our high priest, sympathetic, merciful, and ever faithful. May we humble ourselves under your mighty hand by casting our cares upon you and coming to you in our need, coming to you for help, and may you give us mercy and grace that is sufficient. And may we trust you in all times and in all circumstances, being still, knowing that you are God, knowing that you're in control. May we not choose the wrong path. May the word as a sword not expose our bad motives, but may we be obedient and faithful and trust, and always trust. And as we do these things, Lord, may you be glorified in our midst. Amen.